Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that doesn't really understand the point of shitposting when most of it just gets stuck in the postbox and makes the postal worker really sad. This is episode 165, I'm Tiernan and Duyeb, and this week, as Labour leader and star of Old Jack's Boats, Jeremy Corbyn, announced a policy of free broadband for everyone by 2030, what better way towards a fairer society than by making sure everyone, young, old, of whatever class or ethnicity, can all see how doomsaying, hopeless and tedious social media is, and all get depressed together as one nation. Yes, party policies are now arriving and being treated with all the correct political scrutiny you'd expect from the discourse in 2019, such as insisting that somehow state-funded broadband is a communist policy that will lead to gulags. Well, that's a very narrow-minded, ludicrous view, which ignores the bonus that at least everyone will be able to Google which is the best gulag near them and check all of its reviews. Telford Gulag only has one star. They say the staff weren't very friendly and wouldn't offer any assistance with the really big rocks. Hey, what if you like paying for your broadband, said others, unaware that were it to be implemented, they could take the money they would have used and spend it on something else, often very unreliable instead, like their credibility, before spending four hours on the phone to their own answer machine to replicate the same level of customer service. But to be fair, this sort of fear-mongering is the most fun way to look at all the party policies as they arrive. I mean, Labour's policy of free dental checks, for example, isn't that just the first baby step towards people covering their bodies in teeth and going around eating babies with their knees. The Lib Dems have pledged to plant 60 million trees, replete with photo ops of party leader and I've always just walked in from the cold, Joe Swinson, using a spade like she was trying to bury her dreams of a majority. 60 million trees? What next, Joe? Everyone has to wear a tree to work? Your children will have to live in trees? What's for breakfast, Mum? Trees, is it again? Where's the dog gone? Oh, sorry, we've had to replace him with a tree. The Green Party are promising universal basic income by 2025, but what if everyone who gets it uses that money to buy bombs and then throws them at children. This must be why the Conservatives are still so far ahead in the polls, because they've already taken policies to the most stupid place they can go, as they've pledged to create an equal immigration system by being shitty to absolutely everyone from further away than Jersey. 
Immigration isn't high on the list of voter concerns at the moment, but that hasn't stopped the Tories from dredging it up from the blame pit to make sure everyone remembers that it wasn't them that have completely fucked things up for nine years, but it was that lot from across the sea that Foreign Secretary and Sausage Casing pulled over a Lego shark Dominic Raab didn't even know was there until about a year ago. No wonder he's scared, only just learning about that giant water puddle, and now he understands some people can traverse across it too. Terrifying. What if they have other magic skills like horse whispering or laser eyes? Ugh. The Conservatives won't put an, as they say, arbitrary figure on how much they'll reduce immigration by, because it's much easier to achieve a target if all it requires is Rob standing around at Heathrow trying not to get scared of the big metal birds and telling one man who's just arrived from Portugal that he has to go home again now. It is only unskilled workers that they want to restrict because nothing confuses people on both sides of the immigration argument like saying you'll reduce numbers but only so those that do come can take all of the best jobs. Health Secretary and what if the Sonic movie designers drew Olaf from Frozen, Matt Hancock, announced that all non-UK residents will have to pay an NHS surcharge after Brexit by saying on Twitter that it's the National Health Service, not the International Health Service. Yeah, Matt literal Hancock there, which is why I assume he only uses Virgin trains and complains to people about the snowflake PC world. What an amazing advert to the highly skilled immigrants they supposedly want to attract, right? Come and work in our NHS, but don't use it. What happens if you're from abroad and work at the NHS and get injured while on duty? Would the NHS have to spend extra money getting you an Uber to bleed in rather than do a free suture? Nothing like conducting top-level surgery and then having to pop round the corner to have your own appendix removed by a shady figure with a penknife. But why would anyone have expected Matt Hancock to think any of this through, when just as the NHS reported the worst A&E waiting times on record, he insisted that actually, in some ways, it was performing better than ever? Unless he means performing as in acting, in which case it is doing exceptionally well as a drama or classic tragedy. What you have to hope for is that these policies are sold through relatability, and Prime Minister and Child's first attempt at clay, Boris Johnson, has spent the last week working on that, starting with a Conservative Party broadcast that showed him walking around his campaign office talking about normal things like how he couldn't get a tie takeaway at number 10 because of security checks, in the analogy for post-Brexit trade deal issues that no one needed. Johnson said that his Brexit deal was oven-ready, slam it in the microwave, which is a confused metaphor that suggests that he's never cooked anything for himself before or has spent a lot of time only eating very over- or undercooked meals, which might explain his pallor. But the biggest issue is with how Johnson made a cup of tea, as he poured in his milk while the bag was still in the cup, but I think that seems normal for a man who's regularly in hot water but just seems to embrace it for far too long than is normal. The rest of Johnson's week involved him trying to tell victims of the flooding in the Midlands that he understood their situation perfectly, which in his head means that he once had a bath in a really big tub. And they mostly told him that actually he's not been any help, something that probably didn't compute with a man who's never intended to be, as there's normally people that he can pay to do that sort of thing. In a school, the Prime Minister appeared not to know the words to Wheels on the Bus, which is totally relatable for a man who's never had to sing it to his kids, as he doesn't know where they are. My daughter is 19 months old, and she knows the words to that song, so all I have to do is get her to understand that there will be customs checks between Northern Ireland and Great Britain under Boris's Brexit deal, and I reckon she's a shoo-in for a far more competent PM.
But his relatability tour continued, and on BBC Breakfast, Johnson told host Naga Manchetti that he last used the NHS when he was at a barbecue and someone dropped a cafetiere, which he then trod on while jumping around to music. I mean, it's stories like that that make you wonder if he's just seen a few things on his journey there and constructed it like an idiot Kaiser Soze, but with a life more in line with the actor who played him. Or is this just how normal events go for him in his weird life? I mean, barbecues with cafetieres being flung around the shop while everyone stomps around to top loader. But just as Johnson was managing to warm everyone's hearts after stepping on broken cafetiers, over the weekend we heard from his ex-partner, potential preferential treatment receiver, and whatever happened to Angelica from Rugrats' Jennifer R. Curie. She said that he cast her aside like she was some sort of gremlin. And casting gremlins aside is risky, as chances are they'll go near water or someone might feed them after midnight, and they could become very dangerous. Whereas there'd have been no chance of that if Johnson had just kept her nearby, what with his inability to even work a microwave. Arcuri said all of this as part of an ITV expose, claiming that Johnson and her did have a sexual relationship, something that they've both denied. And it would mean that while the High Court deemed the government money Arcuri received with Johnson's backing was appropriate, this revelation could change that. It's typically ironic that in his constituency of Uxbridge, Johnson is contesting his seat against candidates Lord Buckethead and Count Binface, and yet he's the clown that's always, always covering something up. At the beginning of the week, the Labour Party were hit by two cyber attacks, which has to be the most boring Christmas Doctor Who story ever. Corbyn said the timing of the attacks was suspicious, which is odd as I'd have said that's exactly why it happened. Chances are high that the perpetrators will be caught and the Labour leader will insist on inviting them to Parliament for peace negotiations while they simultaneously hack his phone. Labour said that no data was leaked, which is fortunate as that means it's still there for internal staff to leak first. On an interview with BBC's Marshall, Corbyn was asked about Labour's policy on freedom of movement, something that was voted for by members at their conference, and he replied simply that post-Brexit, there will be a great deal of movement. I mean, what does that mean? People running to stores to find the last tins of things? The fits everyone will have who can't get their medicines? Compulsory dance classes? Labour's manifesto is out this Thursday, replete with full costings apparently, but what it won't have is a commitment to a second Scottish referendum, Corbyn insisting that if his party are in government, then Scotland will see the benefits. What, everyone will be on universal credit? I'm not sure they'll be that excited, to be honest. Meanwhile, the Lib Dems, ever ones to see a gap in the market and not inquire why it's there, have decided that as the two main parties are promising more spending on services, they'll be backing a return to austerity instead, promising government spending will always run to a permanent surplus. Yes, they aren't just keen to reverse the clock on Brexit, but also on all other policies of the time, and it's likely only days before they pledge to lure former PM and human cornpuff David Cameron from out of his big shed in order to appeal to no one. At the same time as announcing this, Lib Dem candidate for cities of London and Westminster and only human with a gloss coating, Chuka Amuna, said that the party couldn't back now the bid for the independent MP and rectangle with eyes David Gork to get re-elected because he presided over welfare cuts as a Conservative cabinet minister. Which is awkward, as several of his new party mates from the Conservatives voted for those cuts, as did Amuna's new boss. Maybe it's the presiding over them that Chuka doesn't like us. He's far more keen to just be part of a group that supports them, but pretends it's someone else's fault all along. At the Confederation of British Industry Conference, all three party leaders addressed the audience. Johnson said he was scrapping the proposed 2% cut to corporation tax in order to spend it on other national priorities like the NHS, even though it doesn't actually mean any more money for the NHS that he hasn't already pledged. If anything, this announcement just said, I'll keep a tiny bit of the bare minimum of DOS you gave us in order to spruce up our hospitals all nice before you buy them from us. 
Johnson also hinted at significant childcare policy pledges in their manifesto, which will probably just boil down to him promising to visit the ones he knows of at least once a year. Corbyn told the CBI that they had so much to gain from a Labour victory, though he didn't specify if that was in terms of finances or just more people being able to review companies badly on their free broadband. Swinson said the Lib Dems were the natural party of business, which I think sounds like a euphemism for being best at pooing. And Brexit party leader and man entirely composed of eye bags, Nigel Farage, has insisted that his candidates have been offered government jobs if they promise to step down to make way for Conservative ones, something that Boris Johnson has denied. Horror Goomba, Anne Widdicombe, backed Farage saying she was offered a role in Brexit negotiations if she stood down, but could not be buttered up, which is good as that's not an image that anyone wants ever, ever. Farage has accused Johnson of corruption, which must have caused a whole ton of pots and kettles to immediately give up. Still, it does mean that one of them is telling the truth, and only when we discover who it is will we be able to get to the castle. And lastly, an exclusive interview with a man who's like if someone stuffed a suit with the backing bit that you throw away from transparent graph paper, Prince Andrew. All about his connection to convicted paedophile and man who definitely didn't kill himself, Jeffrey Epstein, was somehow both a cringeworthy hour of bullshit and the most boring viewing ever. Andrew's excuses as to why he didn't have sex with a girl who claimed she was both trafficked and then raped by him included that it can't have been him as he was at home with the children, which is not something you want to say when associated with Epstein. He couldn't recall ever meeting a woman that he had several photos with, said he'd never been upstairs in Epstein's house and then said one of the photos was taken upstairs, but somehow recalled going to Pizza Express in Woking because it was such a memorable experience. To be fair, being part of the monarchy, going to a normal restaurant is probably memorable on account of how rarely you ever do it. Whereas you might completely forget stuff that happens so frequently it's not even of note anymore. At one point, Andrew claimed a description that can't have been of him, as he has a condition that means he doesn't sweat, an excuse that's so shit he should have at least been imaginative with it, and said, it can't have been me, as I occasionally cease to exist except in the form of a tortoise. The whole interview did absolute wonders for the credibility of anyone who isn't Prince Andrew, and has left everyone feeling very much like the royal family are just getting away with some heinous activity because of who they are. Why am I mentioning this on a politics podcast? Well, our current Prime Minister has refused to discuss the interview, but back in August, Johnson defended Andrew's connections with Epstein, saying that he'd seen the good the Prince had done for UK businesses overseas. I guess we'll never know exactly what type of industry that business was in, or just how legal it was. And just as I'm recording this, the Lib Dems and SNP have lost their High Court challenge to be included in the ITV leaders debate on Tuesday that may have happened by the time you heard this. And I hope for your sake that you ended your Tuesday evening by doing something far more fun like repeatedly poking yourself in the eye. The party said it was biased as there's no pro-Remain or Scottish independence viewpoint in the show, but the High Court said it wasn't suitable for judicial review, probably because both Johnson's and Corbyn's lack of consistency on those issues could mean that both areas do indeed get covered. Ah, howdy, Parpol Brods. How's you? Well, this week's show nearly didn't happen as the whole Duyeb family got hit by the norovirus this weekend, uh, taking it in turns one by one to become disgusting fountains of bodily horror. I got hit on Sunday and I was kind of excited about the prospect of actually getting to stay in bed all day until I realised that norovirus is the one bug that means you have to leap out of bed every few minutes or bed will become a bad, bad place of terrible things. My daughter had it Friday and Saturday and she very quickly learned that we would do anything to make her happy while she was having a terrible time chucking up her guts. 
which means she got endless CBBs, and at one point I had to sing Wheels on the Bus so many times based on her requests that it ended up not only having all the usual bus things of windscreen wipers, engine, bell, drivers and passengers, but also our whole family, all of our friends, a farm, various exotic animals, every CBBs character she knows, some fireworks, a car, a robot, a rocket, uh, a lot of fruit and veg, specific badges from Hey Dougie and some pasta. I feel I've learned a couple of things from that experience. Uh, One is that considering the Prime Minister couldn't even remember one verse and I did about 80 odd, I'm clearly more qualified uh, to run things than he is. And the other thing is that based on what my daughter thinks should be on a bus, she must never ever become Transport Secretary ever. She'd be worse than Chris Grayling. I mean, Rush Hour would just be horrendous for everyone. Um, Anyway, I hope that you're doing better than that and you haven't been all norovirus. And thankfully, the podcast is here. Um, I'm not sure who's thankful about it, though. I mean, it's just yet another outlet where you can hear that the Conservatives are doing well in the polls because it turns out everyone just loves NHS waiting times increasing and food bank usage increasing. I mean, all we need now, I guess, is some sort of massive infrastructure collapse due to neglect and they'll gain another 10% because we all clearly hate ourselves. Oh, God, it's so bleak. Sorry, what I meant to say was uh, hello to all you new listeners that have joined thanks to, I assume, that one quite lazy tweet that I did that everyone seemed to like. Um, I'm sure you've already unsubscribed, but if not, welcome aboard the Laugh So You Don't Cry train. Um, If you do enjoy the show, don't forget to spread the word about it. If you can donate to the ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro to fuel me with oh-so-needed coffee or the patreon.com forward slash parpolbro if you fancy that instead. I know you've all left the Patreon. I know it's not popular anymore. I know I don't do any perks, but one day one day I will have time to do them and it's worth it just for the possibility the uncertainty that you clearly don't have enough of in your lives I mean come on it works for the government doesn't it that possibility of hope despite absolutely knowing that it won't come to fruition and if it works for them then you should give me one pound a month um, also you can review the show on any of your pod apps what you use and hey um, hey uh, like listeners around the world I found a website that tells me all the reviews on Apple podcasts from other countries that I couldn't see on the UK version here so um Firstly, sorry for ignoring you for ages. Um, and secondly, thank you tons to Space 9 in the US for your very lovely review this week. And uh, Taini Agrafika in Taiwan, um, who also put something lovely. And many others. There's loads of reviews. I just didn't know were there. So I'm very sorry I've not mentioned and given you a shout out before. How stereotypically British is that? Just completely ignoring viewpoints from anywhere else. Um, I'm very sorry, but thank you so much for your lovely words. Um, a couple of things to mention this week. Uh, firstly, I have made a little extra page on the partly political broadcast at Credit UK site where you can find on the menu um, called Election 2019 Pod Guide and I've listed there all the episodes of this show with interviews on that you might find useful in the lead up to this election Um, and you can find those based on category from Brexit and climate change to jobs, disability rights and more. Obviously the jokes in those episodes will be super out of date so you may want to skip to the chat bits but um, I hope even one of you finds that useful. Um, I should also warn you that the audio from earlier episodes is proper balls so don't get all hate mail in my face about that. I was but a learner back then and now I am a master. Um, If there are bits of interviews you think are particularly useful and you want to cut or use them for your own persuasive campaigning needs, please, please do so. Um, If you drop me a line, I can also send you the original audio too. If I had time, I would do it, but I don't because I've been too busy being sick. You're welcome. Uh, the other thing is that Sam Duckworth, a.k.a. Get Cape, Wear Cape, Fly, um, is hosting an event at King's Place in King's Cross on Sunday called Last Registration, celebrating the right to vote with loads of guests and stuff, and it's only a quid for tickets. Um, I'm involved in some currently undecided way, but I'll be there 
doing something. I think potentially with Tatum from Simple Politics, we haven't quite worked it out yet. Um, but it all sounds very fun. I don't even know all the other guests are, but I think there's quite a lot of good people lined up. Um, and ticket links will be on Sam's Twitter probably by the time you hear this. And he is at Forget Cape. Um, oh, and the other other thing, I keep forgetting to plug it, but do check out the Not As Comedy podcast that I also host, Future Curious. Um, the one about participatory futures is now out and is genuinely hopeful about the future um, and social progression. So that makes a nice change, doesn't it? I mean, where are you going to hear that? They're basically nowhere. Um, available on all the places where you get noises. So do download that Nestor's Future Curious podcast. Right, this week's show is, yes, you've guessed it, even more election stuff because what else is there? Well, yes, there's all the impeachment stuff in the US and all the really, really grim stuff in Hong Kong, but I don't understand any of that as I've been too caught up in how Boris Johnson can't make tea. I speak to political sociologist Paula Surridge about what on earth might happen and I waffle on a bit in the middle about some other things knowing full well that the leadership debates and manifesto releases will come out later this week and make it all redundant. You're welcome. One thing that is absolutely certain this election uh, is that no one at all is certain how it will go. Certain uncertainty is the kind of certainty that we've had for years now, what with Brexit and the like, so it does make sense that this general election is keeping the theme of our times. While I feel quite sure that we'll end up with a Conservative majority, resulting in everyone centre and left blaming each other for it, while Johnson uses the distraction to grope the Queen, sell the entirety of Yorkshire to Trump to be used as a golf course, and deports anyone whose surname isn't the same as his, leaving just him and his 7,000 children to run right around the country, while I think that's what will happen... In reality, there's also a chance it'll be a Labour minority government or a coalition or possibly just a weird standoff where everyone in the UK abstains from voting out of sheer boredom of it all and the House of Commons remains completely empty till 2025 and we all actually enjoy our lives and have a break. Polls predict a larger than 10-point Tory lead, but is that including silent Tory voters? What about silent Labour or Lib Dem voters? Do they exist? Well, no, not according to my social media. What about people who didn't vote last time and might vote this time, or might not? What about all those polling stations that may be under 12 foot of snow, or floating, or require having to sit through a year three nativity play in order to get to it? There are so many variables, it's very hard to know where to begin, or even if we should be beginning at all, when there's four weeks left to go. So this week I spoke to Paula Surridge, a political sociologist at Bristol University who does sterling work looking at all the info and trying her best to work out exactly what might happen. Though as you can hear from her very interesting answers, the main thing you might want to take away from all this is that, hey, it's just too early to tell, so you may as well ignore everything for at least a week or so and have a cuppa. Which, as far as I'm concerned, is the sort of grey-day advice that we need right now. Hope you enjoy. Here is Paula. The first question I've got to ask you, which is not an easy one to answer at all. Um, is this election at all possible to predict? Because nobody I've spoken to seems to have a clue about what is going to happen. I think um, some some people are edging their bets a little bit based on having having bad experiences in the last two elections. So I think in some senses, some people might be overcompensating as to how unpredictable it is. I think elections are always a little bit unpredictable. Um, but in terms of this election at this point in time, we don't even exactly know where candidates are going to stand from different parties. So some things that we might think are going to happen might not even be able to happen because those candidates might not be standing. I mean, you know, a, a week ago, we would have been talking about what the Brexit party might do in various places. And now they're not standing in those places. So it's it's really hard to predict even what 
the kind of competition itself is going to look like when we get to polling day. So at what point in the election cycle would you say is is useful to kind of start looking at things from them or when you can start getting a clearer picture? (laughs) I I might say the 13th of December. Um, But I think we start to get a clearer picture in the last couple of weeks of the campaign because then the electorate are, are much more tuned in. Um, I regularly speak to people at the moment who still are not entirely clear if and when an election is happening. So the electorate aren't all tuned in yet. By then, we will have obviously a much clearer idea where candidates are standing. Um, And the polls generally, although they they move during a campaign, by that last kind of week to 10 days, we seem to have a much clearer idea of the direction that they're moving in um, over these weeks. Right. So should we for the next couple of weeks not really like would it be a good idea to shut off from everything until two weeks before are these all just sort of the teaser trailers for the trailer is that what we're getting at the moment i think i think so i think actually it might not be a bad idea if we all just kind of went to bed for two weeks and then came back um but no we will we will see people trying to shape the narrative now um and the degree of success they have in doing that so the the Lib Dems, although they've begun to talk about other things, they're going to want the focus to remain on Brexit because that's where they're most distinctive. And so over these two weeks, although we will be um, not quite getting a full picture, we'll be seeing how the campaign's developing, what the issues become, if there's any big unexpected events like um, the flooding we're seeing in the north of England at the moment, um, those kinds of of fairly big events have have the potential to shape an election campaign. So during these two weeks, although it might be a nice idea to hibernate, I think we probably should at least be keeping keeping an eye on what's going on, what narratives are getting picked up, what people are talking about. From this point already, what are the key changes between uh, this upcoming election and the 2017 election? Because that one was also meant to be about Brexit and then didn't quite end up being. <laughs> but, you know, we've got one new, well, two new party leaders. What what else should we be looking at as being the main main differences? So the, the main difference is, is that we're starting um, with more parties looking competitive. Um, so in 2017, the Liberal Democrats hadn't quite recovered from their crash in 2015 following the coalition. So they weren't competing at the level they are now. Um, although... Um, at least as we're recording, the Brexit party has stood down in half of the seats. There's still the potential for them to pull off unpredicted results in the seats they do stand in. So we've, we've got a very different shape of party competition. Um, obviously, you mentioned the change in leadership. That's particularly noticeable for the Conservatives, a very different kind of leader now, as well as a kind of changing shape of the party, um, as they've had kind of lots of MPs stepping down, losing the whip, changing parties and so on. So there's there's been a bit of a change in the in the parties themselves, but in terms of the voters, there's now more options for most voters um, than there were really back in, in 2017. And have these voters, uh, do, do people still have party loyalty? Does it feel like that's changed in the last few years? Because it definitely used to be a thing that people were, you know, their whole families voted Labour or their whole families voted Conservative and that was the way it was always going to be. But it, it, it doesn't seem to be quite like that anymore. So we've seen party loyalties have been on the decline over quite a long period of time now. And it is certainly the case that people are not attached to parties in the way that they were um, two, three decades ago. There is still some sense of party loyalty or perhaps it sometimes expresses itself not so much as party loyalty as a dislike of the other side that kind of lingers on longer than in some ways in the connection 
<laughs> to, to the party that they voted for in the past. Um, but it hasn't disappeared completely. Um, and it's still the case that although lots of people change their votes between different elections, there are also quite a lot of people who continue to vote in the same way. Um, I, I give as a measure of volatility that the British election study team estimated about half of people switched vote at least once between 2010 and 2017, which is very high in terms of the kind of historical pattern. But it also means half of people didn't. Half of people do still have those kind of very regular um, voting behaviours that they do election after election. So it's about 50% there's still party loyalty. Is the other 50% more Brexit-based now? Is is there, you know, are people still heading towards a very kind of leave or remain choice of vote? Um, some are, that, but but the issue we have is that Brexit is is what, what we call a cross-cutting issue. So you can't easily predict somebody's leave or remain position from their kind of left-right position. Um, there are people on the left who support Brexit and people on the left who support Remain and vice versa. And because we've got that kind of cross-cutting issue, um, people might go in either direction. And that's one of the elements, actually, that makes things quite unpredictable. We, we know how people might vote if they all voted along Brexit lines. And we know how they might vote if they all voted along their kind of old economic lines that, that line up quite closely with Conservative and Labour. But when you put those two things together, it's not clear how um, someone who is a very left-leaning Leave voter might vote, someone who's a very um, right-leaning Remain voter might vote. We don't really know. And those are the groups that are um, most unpredictable in this election. You know, if you're if you're a Remain-leaning Conservative, where are you going to go? If you're a um, Leave-leaning Labour voter, where are you going to go? And, and that's what's quite unpredictable. And it's not a small amount of people. Um, it's about 30% of Conservative and Labour voters that are Remain and Leave respectively, um, based on the 2017 data. And, and is that why no one's been particularly clear about what the Brexit Party standing down in, in 317 seats for the Conservatives, or sorry, where the Conservatives already have a seat? I, I've sort of not really seen anyone be quite clear on exactly what that will mean, because I guess that could affect uh, Leave voters, or or you know, is it, there's no no real clear picture as to what that's going to lead to. No, so I think that it has a couple of potential consequences. Um, the, the first consequence is it should make those seats easier for the Conservatives to hold on to. Um, it makes it particularly difficult for the Lib Dems to win back the seats they held um, in parts of the South West that are quite Leave-leaning. Um, if, the, if the Leave vote there is, is united behind the Conservatives, it makes it much harder for the Lib Dems to break through there. But on the flip side of that, if you've got the Brexit Party giving these very clear signals that, that the Conservatives, I mean, there was a quote going around last night from, from um, I think it was from Aaron Banks, saying that the Conservative Party is now the Brexit Party. If you get those kinds of messages coming across, it could shift some of those Remain-leaning Conservatives away from the party. Um, so, And it gives the Lib Dems a much clearer message to send to those Conservative Remainers that, you know, this isn't the party for you anymore. Um, you need to break away. So it is it is unclear exactly what the impact would be, but the most likely impact is it makes it easier for the Conservatives to hold on in, in more of those seats. 
And what what about on the other side with the sort of uh, the Unite for Remain kind of campaign in the the seats that Plaid Cymru and, and the Lib Dems and the Greens are working together? Is that likely to be successful in getting more Remain seats? Marginally, and um, the estimates that I've that I've looked at suggest that there might be a handful of seats where that could be successful. It might make life easier for the Lib Dems in Cheltenham, for example, um, but it's not going to change huge numbers of seats. Um, in many of those seats, the party that is standing for that alliance were already either a long way behind or a long way ahead. So it's it's only making a difference um, in a handful of seats there. Um, and even there, um, I did some work on this last week. It's it's. We, we can't assume that every single Green Party voter is going to vote Lib Dem. Um, we can't assume that every every uh, Plaid voter is going to vote Green and things like that. Voters still have um, kind of residual party loyalties. And, and as I said before, um, some of them don't like the other parties. Um, there's, a, there's a chunk of Green Party voters who actually don't like the Liberal Democrats. It's unlikely that even given the messaging they're getting, that they're going to vote for them. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And we'll be back with Paula in a minute, but first... Wow, that jingle doesn't get any better, does it? Yes, it's more election flex. And this week, it's a speedy look at a few more of the policies announced so far by some of the parties. But damn, it's speedy. The Prime Minister told the CBI conference today that they would scrap their planned 2% cuts to corporation tax, which would generate £6 billion that they can spend on the NHS, because for some reason that £350 million per week from leaving the EU that we definitely aren't going to get isn't enough, because, you know, it doesn't exist. This isn't extra to what they've already pledged to the NHS, they just hadn't bothered to explain where that money for their big NHS pledge was going to come from, and now they have, except that Johnson also told the CBI conference that they're going to review business rates and cut employers' national insurance contributions, which guess what, all go towards things like the NHS. 
No idea what those business rates reviews would be, though, or national insurance cuts, but I guess we probably wouldn't find out till after the election, and chances are they'll be high-fiving everyone with one hand while the other is punishing you in the leg until it's dead. The other big policy announcement from the Conservatives was that they'd cut immigration figures, but they haven't said by how much, as apparently that's arbitrary. You know, to make a policy achievable when they haven't managed it before, because all of their claims about reducing it to tens of thousands were stupid. They keep banging on about an Australian point-style system, but Conservatives have also said that most people immigrating to the UK would need a job offer before they could be allowed in, which means it isn't an Australian points-based system, it's just like the one we've always had, only now it'll apply to EU citizens as well. Immigration to the UK has actually dropped since 2010, probably because more people have realised how absolutely bleak our government are and that there's much nicer places to go where you won't be constantly insulted for paying tax and working really hard. EU immigration in particular has fallen since 2016, and whereas non-EU immigration has stayed pretty much the same, last year 226,000 more people arrived than left. Though depending on how this election goes, I suspect the emigration numbers might leap a bit. Johnson also previously pledged that they'd fast-track workers for the NHS on an NHS visa, which would cost £464, about half of what it does for other professions at £928. But added to this would be a surcharge to use the NHS for £625 a year, even though they know they'll be coming to staff it because there aren't enough workers there. I mean, how shit is that as a marketing incentive? Spend your money so you can get treated at a hospital that will be understaffed because you won't be working. Brilliant. This isn't a manifesto policy, but it's also worth adding that just recently, the Home Secretary in person that all the grim fairy tales warned you about, Pretty Patel, just blocked the extraction of 60 minors and orphans from Syria, some children of ISIS members, but all British nationals, on the basis that the kids are security risks. How on earth are they that? I mean, I suppose if they're given a better life than the one they had under irresponsible parents, then I guess, you know, maybe, just maybe, if they were allowed to come and live in a country that might offer them some hope whatsoever, they might laugh or smile, and then that would be absolutely ruinous to the British values Pretty Patel upholds that involve being genuinely shitty, and one of them might even protest against her punching kittens for fun, as that's definitely what she does. It definitely is. That is absolutely what she does. The reason that's worth adding, I know it's not a policy, but that's kind of a glimpse, isn't it, at how tough she and the government will make things for anyone from anywhere else coming to the UK if they get a majority. On the plus side, anyone that isn't allowed to come here won't have to deal with a home secretary who clearly spends her weekends scowling at babies. Right, before we look at Labour policies, a very quick fact check on what Conservatives have said about them, as it's always handy to get some of them truths in, in the old truth bank. Fill it up with some of them truths, why don't you? Johnson said that Corbyn's corporation tax plans are to have the highest in Europe, which isn't true, as Labour are saying they'll raise it to 26%, which is the same as the UK had in 2011, and lower than France, Portugal, Belgium and Greece. That's 7% higher than Johnson's 19% current rate, but still ain't the highest. But I mean, we can't expect Johnson to be looking at facts about Europe, can we? In terms of immigration too, the Conservatives have said that Labour plans would increase immigration to 840,000 immigrants a year, but according to full fact, Labour haven't even said what their plans are yet, and the way the Conservatives came to those figures isn't at all credible. Yeah, we're meant to trust them with the economy. Okay, so Labour's policy that they announced this week, one of them, is to deliver free broadband for everyone by 2020, which is fairly important in a country where you need to have broadband to apply for universal credit or, you know, to register to vote or, you know, to just say, like, racist things on YouTube. Currently, only 1.5% of all homes in the UK have full fibre broadband, which is the type that really helps you poo. Sorry, I mean gives you the fastest internet. Which is sort of the same, except the latter means you consume shit rather than sort of get rid of it. 
Labour say the whole thing will cost about £20 billion, but BT, which is what they'd be partly renationalising to do this, say it'll be £30 to £40 billion. The National Infrastructure Commission say it'll be £33 billion, and the Conservatives say it'll be £40 billion because they just like to make up numbers based on whatever cheese they've eaten. According to a Sky News fact check, labour figures add up in theory as they've covered maintenance costs by putting new taxes on companies like Google and Amazon, then minus that cost, the 20 billion they've pledged adds up to the National Infrastructure Commission's costs. But there might be a ton of hidden costs such as buying private companies, legal fees and the BT pension costs that would need to be covered. Australia have a nationalised broadband network that is reportedly really crap with loads of delays, dodgy network quality and unexpected cost rises, but Labour say that's down to it only being part nationalised, which means it operates on a franchising model. And hey, we've all been to shit parts of a franchise. I'm looking at you, Subway, off the A1 near Peterborough. I said I didn't want sweet corn and onions, and yet you still, you still did it. South Korea currently has a 95% broadband rollout via a mix of state and private investment that is deemed successful. So that's a better thing to look at. Some argue that a rollout isn't enough, as full fibre broadband everywhere by 2030 would mean we'd be where many countries are at now, so by 2030 they'd still be way ahead of us by using some sort of magic internet that beams you trolls and pirate copies of The Mandalorian in less than a second straight into your brain. But aside from fears that Labour running this network will somehow turn it into an East Germany-style monitoring operation, even though the rest of the time they're also apparently too useless to do anything, it's generally acknowledged that we have to do something like this in order to make the UK future-proof, even if all other signs are the we're rapidly heading into the past. And last one, the Lib Dems have pledged to replace the business rate system with a land value tax and spend £100 billion on tackling climate change, all while keeping a structural surplus equal to 1% of the national income. But what on earth does that mean? Well, it means businesses would be charged according to commercial land value rather than straight up banded business rates, lots of which are outdated and don't seem to account for the fact that some internet firms are really, really tiny but earn quite a lot of money. Which, according to the Lib Dems, would cut taxes by 92% in local authority areas, it would help smaller business, especially properly physically tiny ones, and it would allow them to invest in renewable energy solutions, which all sounds really grand. But the CBI said the implementation of it would be so complicated that it may not cut costs overall. The £100 billion on tackling climate change uh, sounds really important and very necessary, but it hasn't been costed properly um, and is based on the money that we'd have not leaving the EU if that money isn't being used elsewhere, like, I don't know, sending the EU endless, I'm sorry, please forgive me, cards and chocolates. I can't find much details yet on the surplus that they proposed, um, so this could be completely wrong, but in an election where after nine years of cuts both main parties are pledging more spending, it might be quite a hard sell for the Lib Dems to say that there really can't be much hard buying. And that's that for now. Uh, manifestos start coming out this week, so I'll look at them as they do. If there's any policies you particularly like me to look at, um, probably badly, or election aspects you think need to be checked, do dot do drop me a line. Ultimately, I suppose lots of these things that are being pledged won't happen anyway, because it'd be a minority government it will get blocked in Parliament, or maybe there'll be some other unexpected events, or many other things, but it comes down to which provides a better option of hope. I mean, do you want a future-proof climate change tackling UK, or do you want one where Pretty Patel is standing on the coast with a burning pitchfork telling children to fuck off back to a war zone? I mean, I'm just saying. And now, back to Paula. So bearing what you just said in mind with the last two questions and the fact that the whole thing is uh, uncertain at this point anyway, is is uh, does tactical voting make sense? Because that's been the big sort of uh, narrative last couple of weeks is that all these tactical voting sites and that's the way um, primarily Remain campaigns have said to get Remain. But there's also been a bit of uh, leave tactical voting and sort of get rid of the Conservatives tactical voting. And does it does it make sense considering all these variables? 
it's really difficult because it it makes sense if if remain or leave is your only driving force in the election then it makes sense for you to try and get an mp from a leave or remain party into your constituency but for most people that isn't the only issue there are other issues as well and there are these um kind of blockers to tactical voting as well in that there are um you know conservative Remain voters are probably not going to vote tactically for the Labour Party, even if that's the best strategy for them to get um, a, a Remain MP. So it's, it is more complicated than that. It's that that mashup of these two different dimensions of our politics. Um, and if if the only thing you care about is Brexit, then looking at the tactical voting sites and working out the best one probably isn't a best a bad strategy. Um, but not most voters aren't only motivated by that one thing and does it so the term i've heard and, and i've not had explained to me so is mrp is that is that the term that means the the way in which tactical voting is sort of based on ah no so mrp is a form of um statistical modeling that allows you to take a um fairly large sample survey a big opinion poll effectively so whereas to get national figures you might poll somewhere between one and 3,000 people. For the MRP, you're usually polling somewhere between 20 and 40,000 people because that then allows you to estimate how different groups of voters vote. So you can estimate how a um, degree-holding female who's aged 45 to 65 might vote based on that data. And then you um, kind of engineer that to look at how many of that type of voter there are in each constituency, and then you can work out how those constituents will vote. They also factor in um, kind of local political factors, local voting patterns in those constituencies as well. But that, that's what MRP does. So what it then does in terms of tactical voting is it allows you to look at how a particular constituency might vote based on current polling rather than being based only on how they voted in 2017 or 1987, if you like. It, it gives you something that's much more up to date. So it's, it's a more accurate way of representing what's going on in a constituency right now compared to just using what happened in the constituency at the previous election. So is that the sort of thing that we should be going at? I mean, is, is that uh, a much better indicator of what might happen? Yes. I mean, for this, I've been saying I've been saying for some time that for this particular election, that's really the only game in town worth playing in terms of making predictions, because we're expecting different constituencies to behave differently. We're expecting now for different constituencies to have different choices even um you know looking at the brexit party vote share across the whole country isn't going to help you in predicting what's happening in seats where they're not standing um likewise if the lib dems are performing particularly well in individual constituencies what it looks like in terms of their national vote share might not be the best guide for you so i think both in terms of tactical voting but also in terms of looking at whether we're looking at a small conservative majority, a hung parliament, who might be the largest party. All those kinds of questions are much better answered by these models. But there are diff- there are different kinds of models. And as with any statistical model, they are only as good as the data that go into them. So if the polling is a long way off, the MRP models will also be less reliable.
Wow. So do you, I mean, from from your point of view, you know, you, you have to study these all the time and I you must be exhausted at the moment. I don't know how you're doing it. Um, <laughs> do, you know, do, you, do you feel like we need new methods to be doing this? It feels like you're having to look at sort of 12 different things in order to get a vague idea of what might happen, even though it won't. Is it from your point of view, are we in need of some sort of better system to to uh, predict how these things might be happening? I think I think the um, the MRP system is very good and is the best we have at the moment to be able to do the, these things. Um, there are longer term questions about how polling is, has um, evolved and changed over time. People have moved to online panels rather than um, telephone surveys, for example. And there every the last two elections, there have been questions asked about those. And as more and more polling organisations sort of enter enter the arena of polling, we get a wider range of potential results. Um, so I think it's 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 important that um, journalists, when they're talking about the polling or the MRP models, are really clear about what actually it is measuring and what we can and can't say about it. And people try really hard to do that. I don't think I don't think people are acting necessarily in bad faith. Um, but I have seen some very poor explanations of what these things are doing and what we should and shouldn't say from them um, in the media over the last couple of weeks. So I, I don't think we're quite there in terms of clarity yet. Sure. Just out of interest, do you think that the do polls have an effect on how people may vote? Because, you know, again, I've seen much of yourself probably on, on Twitter, people see certain polls and go, well, this means that's happening. And I, I wonder if does, that must have a sort of effect on the mentality of whether it's worth voting for someone who maybe isn't doing as well in the polls or, or you know, change your vote to someone who is. I think there's an element of that. Again, some research from the British election study team has suggested that the smaller parties do better when um, people think that the, that the it's going to be a tighter, when they think it's going to be a tight race, they think it's going to be a hung parliament, for example. And so I think those narratives do matter, but but they matter at the margins because actually the proportion of the electorate that are following things that closely is quite small. Sure. Yeah, most people don't have the time <laughs> or care, I suppose, to look at all of them quite as much. As I said before, most of the people I talk to on a daily basis couldn't even tell me the date of the election, never mind what the polling is saying. Right. So really, uh, over the next few weeks, um, obviously MRP, which you said is very important. What else should we be keeping an eye on? What, what could you recommend if we've got listeners who are you know, up for really uh, trying to predict this or work it out or get signs or, I don't know, maybe just some hope somewhere for something. (laughs) You know, what would you, what would you kind of recommend that we're looking at? Is it, you know, do do we need to be looking at absolutely everything all at once? Is is the the weather quite a factor as well? What else do we need to, uh, what would be your beginner's tips, I suppose, to, uh, to trying to work this one out? Yeah, I mean, I have said at the start that you might be better with a weather forecaster than an election forecaster for the next couple of weeks. Um, but the one thing I think that, that gets overlooked is actually how many undecided voters there are. So if you are keen enough to probe a little bit further, um, most all the pollsters that are members of the British Polling Council have to publish the tables that their data are based on. Now, in their headline figures, they rarely tell us how many undecided voters were in that poll. They they either they either recalculate the percentages or they reallocate them depending on the pollster. But you can go onto their tables on their websites and see how many undecided voters there are in different categories. So, for example, one thing I don't think we've been talking about nearly enough is that if you look at recent polling from 
many of the pollsters, YouGov in particular, but I've seen it in other pollsters as well, um, about one in five female voters are still undecided. One in five. That's a huge number of voters in every constituency that have still got to make their minds up how how they will vote. So that's one thing to look at. If you're looking particularly at your own local constituency, um, I've put up um, a post online which sort of talks you through how you can do um, your your own kind of back of an envelope MRP model for your own constituency. <laughs> um, and, and what I prefer to do if anybody asks me about a constituency, things are unpredictable and things might change. But what we can look at are kind of likely scenarios. So usually I take a constituency, um, look at the spread of results over the last three elections and then work out what kind of what I think the kind of base is at the moment. And then what if I was to give the Lib Dems a bit more of the Conservative Remainers or, you know, give them the Labour Party, some of the Lib Dems that they've lost and just have a look at how that might shift the constituency, because that would tell you more about what's going on in your local area um, rather than than focusing on the national picture. Unfortunately, doing that for 650 constituencies would be extremely time-consuming. But I think it's the best way for somebody to get a feel for what might happen in their own area or an area they might be campaigning in, for example. That's very sensible advice. Brilliant. Um, Cool. Well, thank you so much uh, for your time, Paula. Um, Just one last question. Um, Now that we're very certain about the uncertainty, um, apart from yourself, uh, who else would you recommend that listeners kind of check out or follow for um, data analysis about the election, but also political sociology overall? Who do you go to? Who are your your preferred uh, people? So my preferred people, in terms of kind of websites, I look at what the British Election Study team have been have been saying. Um, they, they, you can look on their website for that. The um, UK in a changing EU now have a general election part of their website as well. Um, and the LSE have a series of blogs, which are really, really um, good. All of those are great because because things go up really fast. And so in a, in a picture that's changing really, really quickly, you don't necessarily want to wait. 10 days before something appears. So they're all really good, really good for, for, for um, quick things. In terms of who to look out for on Twitter, the best advice I can give people is to have a look at who I'm following because I don't want to name any one person and forget who I, somebody that, that might be absolutely critical. Um, but there's some really, really good analysis being done on Twitter all the time. So have a look at um, who I'm following. It isn't a particularly long list and it's all very much in this in this sort of area. Thank you to Paula for that. Um, you can find her on Twitter at P underscore Surridge, S-U-R-R-I-D-G-E. And her blog is at medium.com forward slash at P Surridge. Uh, do get following her ASAP for excellent election analysis. Um, Paula wrote an article for The Guardian end of last week, too, about how Tory Remainers, not Labour leavers, are the key to this election. And it's very worth a read. I'll pop a link in the pod blurb. Uh, there is hopefully a guest for next week, though uh, they think they just cancelled uh, as I was recording this. I think that's what the email says. Um, but I'll try and sort something out if that's the case. Uh, why does that happen? Um, there's one or two other people I have lined up too while this short election somehow drags on. And I'm likely not to have any guests in that last week before the election because what's the point? Um, but who would you like to hear from in the lead up to the big day? Let me know. And you can do that by dropping me a line at the contact page on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk, the at Bro Twitter account, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group that no one uses much including me or email me 
at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or maybe just plaster it on several leaflets featuring bar charts with small print that points out how you've made them all up in your head based on Mark Rothko paintings you've seen, and I wouldn't have a clue if you're recommending someone to me or if it's just another election leaflet that I can give my daughter to scribble on and then pop in the bin. It is, as always, probably just best to email. And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thanks again for tuning in via your old reliable wireless. And do stay listening for the Shipping Forecast National Anthem, the weird pagan curses that only happen when everyone goes to bed, and a list of all my favourite swears in alphabetical order. If you did do liking this, then why not give it a review on Apple Podcasts or any of them pod apps where you listen to this, donate to the Kofi and Patreon sites, and most importantly, just tell other people that hearing this isn't shit. Thanks muchly to Acast for the hostings, to The Last Skeptic for the musics, and to Cat Day for typing up the linear line of notes every single week. This will be back next week when the Conservatives warn everyone that Labour will nationalise their children, only for Johnson to realise actually he'd really like that, as then he wouldn't have to have any part in looking after them. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by Boris Johnson's British Potential Brexit tea bags. Let everyone think you're going to take them out, but keep leaving them in and milking it for as long as possible for your own benefit. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.